0: Blessed are those who thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Hello and welcome to our Thirsty Podcast. My name is Jeremy Lightning, and I'm here with my co-host, Michael Bluth. Our guest today is Pastor Justin Pommier, uh, and uh, welcome, Pastor Pommier.
1: Hey, thanks. Glad to be here.
2: So, Justin, tell us a little bit about your ministry right now where you are in Trinity in and Cal- in in Union Grove on the other side of the interstate because I learned early on when I got to Racine that we just really don't hang out with the people on the other side of the eye that even though you're really not that far away, it's like the other end of the world for some of our people to go on the other side of the interstate.
1: Okay, I, I do not I don't know I if it's realize that. that. Oh, you didn't realize <laughs> that for the
2: other side that for people coming east to
1: us? Yeah, I mean, I guess I'll uh, maybe I'll just try to compare it to uh, previously serving in northern Michigan, just in the tip of the mitt below the upper peninsula. We were the trolls underneath the bridge. So I guess we'll look at this as a little bit of that similar separation. I'm one of the trolls from the other side of the interstate. Uh, but yes, uh, I currently serve Trinity in Union Grove, uh, a rural community, yet and a quickly expanding community. Uh, currently, there's a lot of building projects going on even all around our church campus. So a lot of apartments, a lot of single-family homes, a lot of duplexes going in, so that's very exciting for us.
0: Um, what was it like in Michigan? What was different about that congregation? Uh, so I actually served a dual parish in northern Michigan, so I served in
1: Indian River and Gaylord, Michigan, uh, also uh, smaller rural communities, um, but of course a dual parish carries with it some of its own uh, interesting quirks and challenges, as well as some really amazing blessings. Uh, the way that two congregations are so closely connected and intimately care for each other uh, was truly, truly a reward to be a part of. So what are some of the blessings then
2: of being in a rural ministry? Because that's very different than here in in Racine with like an urban setting.
1: Yeah, and not having... Served in too many, let's say, more urban settings, uh, what I would say about the rural setting is uh, you are going to have maybe a different pace, so to speak, uh, and you're also going to have uh, a lot of um, really close, I'll say, family connections. Um, you have a lot of deep roots and deep ties, um, a lot of relations within uh, the congregation, as well as a lot of close connections to others in the community, and so uh, kind of uh, having a chance to really get invested uh, in a small section of the community uh, really quickly expands into into the larger community uh, so you make a connection with one uh, family of farmers and then they can tell you oh by the way maiden name is this or that and so you see all the farms and how they're all connected uh, And so it's 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 really a um, just a maybe a slightly different different um, ministry in that there are so many ready-made family connections uh, that can be very Powerful motivators as you're as you're sharing God's word.
0: That was what you see in the New Testament with uh, a lot of things like examples like Cornelius in the Book of Acts. That it, it's the and the jailer and Philippi. It's the families that uh, end up bringing people into the church. Um, so I'm going to change the subject slightly and uh, ask you. You you wore an Edgar Allan Poe sweater today, and uh, he, he was hesitant to. Identify himself as a fan of Edgar Allan Poe, but you you do seem to think uh, that you that think highly of his of his work as a poet. Um, what how would you describe that?
1: All right. Well, yes, I, I didn't want anyone to think that I'm too too uh depressive in my normal state. Um and and maybe not so much a fan of the horror fiction on short stories. Um but certainly the way that he captures human emotion in some of his tales, uh, especially uh, A Telltale Heart, uh as well as some of his um poems and poetry, you you, you do certainly see how relatable um certain human emotions uh, really pour forth in, in a couple of the pieces that he's written. And so it's also just a goofy, fun sweater that my catechism students love. So I wear it from time to time.
0: That I read uh, not long ago, the I think it was The Mask of the Red Death. And I was kind of bracing myself for this to be really creepy and, and jarring. And I don't know if it's just because of modern society that's desensitized me to horror but i was like oh actually that wasn't that bad um but uh but yeah what you say it, actually let me uh, ask you this uh have you seen something i thought i saw a commercial on a streaming service recently for a series about his about him that it's kind of a historical drama about uh um, he was a cadet at the um army uh, the uh, academy what's the academy army academy and uh New York. Uh, West Point. West Point? West, Point? Okay. West Point. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> he was a cadet at West Point. Did you know that? I actually
1: don't know a ton, a ton about his his head, life, his other 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 than
0: maybe a few of his struggles throughout his youth and then other issues during his life. Well, I, but, you, yeah. you definitely know more than me, but I I just, I, I was kind of fascinated by this because it was like a historical drama of a true story that there was a murder at West Point while he was a student there. And then there was this old grizzled detective who was working the case and he was kind of instrumental. Edgar Allan Poe was in, um, have either of you seen a commercial for this? I have not. I have not. It does sound a little bit like an episode of Columbo, too,
1: though. I'm just going to uh, throw that <laughs> out <laughs> there, but <laughs> but that would be a little bit lighter, I would think, the Columbo episode, of
0: course. So, what drew you to um, Union Grove from from Michigan?
1: Yeah, that's such a such a worthwhile question. Um, certainly, something that I've I poured over for quite a while as as I was debating between those calls. Um, I think it it really. Ultimately, the congregation uh, is quite diverse in their age. Uh, We have quite a few. um, I actually want to say we're a congregation of about 260 members, uh, and approximately 80 of those members are 18 or younger, Uh, so it certainly is a great diversity of children, children. Uh, teens young adults uh, and and so that that certainly is a blessing for me and my family to be a part of uh, as well as of course we 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 have the whole spectrum there uh, and so uh, continuing to serve people uh, as shut-ins or when they are in hospital um, just just the 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 rich opportunities that there were for us to serve the the wide spectrum of of God's family here in Union Grove uh, that was one thing that certainly did appeal to us so with that,
2: one of the questions I always wonder about with, uh, you know, a rural setting like that is, you know, how do you fill your time as a pastor? Because, you know, we've got a school, you know, I'm int- intimately connected with uh, WLS, our grade school here, and do do things with Shoreland and so forth, so... I understand how my time is consumed with those kinds of things. So I'm just kind of wondering what consumes your time. I'm sure you're kept busy, but what kind of things are you kept busy with to do in a in a rural setting when you don't have a, a grade school?
1: Yeah, so with the lack of a grade school, uh, it really does just free up your hours to be a little bit more generous in other areas of ministry. Uh, so let's say there is... Um, a couple who needs some counseling. Uh, you don't have to be as quick or curt with them, so to speak. Um, as a matter of fact, earlier this week, I had a counseling okay. session that went two and a half hours long, and you can just do that because you have the freedom to to really extend those sessions. Um, of course, with young children, we do have confirmation classes, and so those do take up uh, uh, certain hours of the week, uh, as well as preparing for Bible study and the other various things that we would expect our pastors to, to um, engage in. There are also, and we haven't quite fully come back, uh, as I understand it, from, from COVID and some of the shutdowns that have taken place here in Wisconsin, um, but there is, uh, there historically have been uh, either services or devotions that have been conducted uh, at nearby facilities, whether they're nursing care facilities or the women's prison that's very close to us as well. Uh, and so those are certainly other areas uh, to to be involved in as you share God's word uh, with with people that desperately need to hear it.
0: You mentioned uh, family, so you're m- married?
1: Yes. So, my wife Carrie and I uh, have been married for six years. I'm getting that number correct. Yes, six years. Um, and we have two children. Uh, so, our son Michael is almost four, and Eliana is two since January. So, yeah. So, they also occupy a fair amount of time, although more so my wife's time than mine. So, you were talking earlier about Union
2: Grove growing. What we, we had on one of your neighbors a few months ago, uh, Dustin Burgundy, uh, in Bristol, just south of you. So
1: what is causing Union Grove to grow? I don't know that I have a complete pulse on the situation, but I would say that um, because there was land available and developer, developers willing to purchase that land, Uh, as well as perhaps some other companies coming to the area. I I know there's an Amazon distribution center, so there are a lot of jobs there. Um, But one of the other perks that I would say with Union Grove and the surrounding areas is we do have some very excellent public schools, Um, so that certainly is a pull. I know that we actually do an event a couple of times a year where we have a babysitting event prior to Christmas, if parents need to do Christmas shopping or right around Valentine's Day. And we open it up to the community. Uh, and we've had a lot of families come in who are not members of our church who just all openly say, we are brand new to the community. We don't know anyone. And so this is amazing that we have a chance to have our kids be supervised for a few hours. We get to have dinner or, or whatever the case may be. Uh, and so, yeah, there are just countless people who are brand new to the community moving from other parts of of the state uh, as well as elsewhere and I, I, I the reason for it I'm not entirely sure I know that there has been of course mention of Foxconn and things of that nature on what will ultimately amount of that time will tell <laughs> probably nothing <laughs> and you know you guys probably have a little bit better idea than I do yeah. me having been here you know a hot minute uh, about a year and a uh, year and a half um, but yeah it's 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 really it, an area that is growing because there is land available and room for growth uh, as well as a good rural calm setting and and excellent public
2: schools. And since Jeremy's fairly new to the area too you know what you said Justin about the excellent schools uh, I do know that Racine uh, Racine Unified schools are not good and so there are going to be parents that And some of our own families have done this too. If they didn't choose Shoreland, a lot of times they have sent their kids out to Union Grove to the high school uh, just because they didn't want to be be dealing with what's going on in Racine Unified. So yeah,
1: I do know from experience about the public schools there in the area. Well, since you went there, yes. That is what I've heard from numerous families that I've had brief contact with even who are just now moved to the area and sending their kids that that yeah maybe they they wanted to move a little bit closer but also just really saw the benefit to the school well these are families
2: that didn't move yep they just (laughs) they just drive their kids all the way out to union grove again all the way it's you know 10 12 miles depending on where you know where they
1: live in racine other side of the interstate though we already talked about this right oh man man, i know (laughs) what else you
2: got jeremy uh, do you want to, do you want to talk about uh ask questions about Justin's
0: last name i know you were very intrigued by that well i was yes i've i've heard several people pronounce or mispronounce it but uh i did i, I said it right pomier pomier yeah and so it's it's <clears throat> Czechoslovakian uh it has been
1: butchered and mispronounced by just about every professor from high school to college to seminary um and so um, what's what's the best worst trans
2: worst pronunciation you've heard is it
1: like permi- worst or best so I'm originally from the state of Minnesota and so while I was at MLC I had a dear professor who said Bemidji from Bemidji because yeah because we have of thinking. course the city of Bemidji yeah. and so um he thought it was hilarious maybe some others did I mostly just thought it was eh, okay let's move on with life um um yeah, I would say that that's typically how it goes. I think some people try and make it sound French. Uh and so they'll try and add a little snooty flair to it. It's not French
0: though. Just so when you mentioned earlier Czechoslovakia, you also mentioned a soup. Yeah, so Vamachka soup is a is a classic favorite. It is
1: a vegetable dill soup uh, and it can be quite quite tasty and a little bit unique cuz not everyone throws a ton of Dill in a soup.
0: But now this reminds me, I've I had a sister who was married to a missionary in Russia and they had um, all kinds of, uh, what did they call it, kvass or it was like cold soups. It was more, it was almost like a coleslaw. So is, is this a warm soup? Uh, every time I've eaten it, yes, it's okay. warm. So. Okay. Uh, but now, what else have you uh, dug into and learned about Czechoslovakian culture? Uh, n- not necessarily a ton, to be quite frank. Um,
1: I know that at least my ancestors would have immigrated here several generations ago. And so as the years go on, you learn less and less and less because you're farmers and you have other more important things to do than talk about the past. The old country. Uh, and so basically, yeah, as as things go on, uh, I really wish that Czech would have been more of a spoken language, uh, at least occasionally. Uh, you really, I really don't have a whole lot of phrases there. Uh, and so yeah most of the most of the heritage is I grew up in a Czech town New Prague is how they say it in in Minnesota but New Prague so when they came <laughs> over and established a new city uh, named it after their old capital uh, and so yeah a lovely community uh, where I was born and raised um, so we do have a couple of um, restaurants that maybe cater to the cuisine of the people uh, as well as a couple holidays or festivals during the summertime uh, that kind of are reminiscent of it but it's mostly just a, you know, maybe wave around a flag, eat some food, and then, okay, that's about, that's about the extent of my, my Czech background, unfortunately. Did you try to get some Czechoslovakian names for your children? Um no, not necessarily uh, again, I think that that would really be pushing it on to my wife, who's not Czechoslovakian of course or or even from a Czech background uh as well as yeah, I mean I'm sure there would be some some quite unique names uh however we we more so obviously with Michael and Eliana went towards uh biblical names and even you know language names that that have meaning behind the name, so that that was kind of important to us for our first couple what's Eliana so Eliana, yeah, yeah, so Eli, my God, and Anna answered, so my God answered. Okay. Uh, And so that was kind of a uh, prayers and prayers and prayers for uh, a healthy pregnancy for mom and baby, and my God answered, so we named her Eliana.
0: That's very good. Yeah.
1: All right, should we get into the gospel
2: lesson? Sure.
0: This Sunday is Transfiguration, and the Gospel is Matthew 17. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and he led them up onto a high mountain by themselves. There he was transfigured in front of them. His face was shining like the sun, his clothing became as white as the light. Just then, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you want, I will make three shelters here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them. Just then a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down and were terrified. Jesus approached and as he touched them, he said, get up and do not be afraid. When they opened their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, do not tell anyone what you have seen until the son of man has been raised from the dead. So Justin, I think a lot of times
2: we skip over the first couple of words in this text and I did too, when I was writing the questions out, it says six days later. What is Matthew referring to? Do you remember uh, what this what event would be six days before this?
1: Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, as I quickly glance back,
0: maybe I could
1: get there, but I'm
0: not. As I'm feverishly opening my Bible Gateway app because I didn't have the whole chapter before this. Yeah, I think
2: I think what he's referring to is Peter's confession of yeah, the I, Christ. I believe that is correct. Yes. Uh, So that's where he says, uh, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, in response to Jesus' question of asking the disciples, who do the people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And that would have happened in the north in Caesarea Philippi. And so, you know, six days later, I think most people are, most Bible scholars believe that this mountain of transfiguration is in the north too. But I don't know how, how well you guys know your biblical
0: archaeology or biblical geography or geography as well. So the, the historical tradition for a long time was Mount Tabor, and uh, there's even a monastery on Mount Tabor that uh, has a whole lineage of monks called the, the Taborite. Um, wait, am I getting that right? Yeah, it, it sounds correct. Yes. That sounds, okay. Yeah. But uh, it's probably much more likely that it was Mount Hermon uh the far in the north because like you said they were up by Caesarea Philippi. Um, Mount Hermon is uh snow capped year round. Um this is uh this is described as a very high mountain and uh I think there's a good chance that uh Jesus and the apostles skied their way down. <laughs> very
2: good. No, no not, not really. Not really. Uh so Justin what does it mean that Jesus was transfigured?
1: Yeah, so uh, metamorphosis uh, is a word that we can perhaps think of here. So so a, a change, a transformation in appearance, uh, oftentimes likely a change that is an elevation in appearance. Uh, and so we do see that here where Jesus became dazzling, uh, brilliant and radiant, uh, not only his skin, but also his clothing, Uh I think it's Mark's gospel that actually describes his clothing as being so bright and dazzling uh, that it is brighter than anyone could possibly bleach it. Uh, And so uh, the picture that we see there uh, is is obviously quite remarkable.
2: One of the ways that I've often described this, like you said, the metamorphosis in the uh, children's devotion, I might do that this Sunday too, is I pull out of my wife's library is Eric Carl's The Very Hungry Caterpillar and then just kind of go through the book with them. And then after the caterpillar is eaten through a little hole in each of the fruits, now he becomes, he's in his cocoon, then becomes a butterfly. So the metamorphosis and explaining it that way. So then Jeremy, uh, Justin kind of touched on this, but of what Jesus looked like, why did he look that way?
0: Because he's God. Right? Uh, well, actually, and no, I, there's more there's more to the answer. So, yeah, so
2: then why didn't he look like that before? Because he was also God before yeah, he went up the mountain.
0: A, a line that I, I think we've talked about this before when we were reading through all of the Gospels, and I shared this line that I read once that I thought was great. Um, that originates with me. I can't remember where I read it, but uh, a good way to think of the transfiguration is it wasn't so much as it wasn't so much a miracle as it was the suspending of an ongoing miracle. And the, so the point of that is the ongoing miracle is that God's deity was covered up and and masked by Jesus' humble and lowly appearance. And for a little bit on the mountain, uh, he took the mask off. And so his disciples could see it it was it was the cessation of a miracle that that was throughout Jesus whole earthly life. That is his, his divine glory was hidden. And for a little bit, it stopped being hidden. Yeah, and with that
2: glory, uh, the Old Testament lesson for this Transfiguration Sunday is Exodus 24, where Moses describes himself, Nadab, Abihu, the 70 elders going up on the mountain, and there God, he says that he did not destroy them with his hand. Uh, Moses goes up later on, and uh, he's inside the cloud, and it's described as a consuming fire. Uh, So other ways to describe the glory of the Lord, Uh, you know, thinking of the glory of the Lord, too, with the the burning bush that didn't burn up or the pillar of cloud and the pillar of uh, fire. Uh, and you know, all of the different ways that God came down, even as that smoke and, and flame in the tabernacle and so forth—that that glory of God—that you couldn't be in God's presence unless, like you know, you said, Jeremy, of God covering up Himself uh, with Moses and the people, or here Jesus wearing that mask of His humanity. Justin, who met Jesus and his disciples
1: on the mountain, and why those two guys? Yeah, so we see quite plainly that the names are included there—Moses and Elijah—and uh, yeah, I suppose someone could rightly question why, why Moses, why Elijah, why not, you know, Jeremiah, or why not Abraham, or why not—and the list of names could go on and on and on. Uh, perhaps one simple explanation is that Moses is seen quite clearly as the lawgiver. Uh, And so all of God's law, which Christ Jesus intended to come and keep and fulfill, uh, Moses is there giving his stamp of approval. Uh, Elijah, as we noted, even in the reference that you gave when when Jesus said, who do the people say I am? And some of them said, maybe Elijah as one of the chief prophets, uh, that here also the prophets who testified concerning the Christ, uh, that Elijah was also giving a clear testimony uh, with his presence there. So you could say that the law and the prophets are represented by Moses and Elijah. You know,
2: what you were talking about, Justin, of, you know, why Moses and Elijah, and why not Jeremiah or Isaiah? You know, they're, they're described as the major prophets. You know, I was just wondering if they were feeling left out in heaven when Moses and Elijah got back, and why not us, but I'm probably not
1: no, I don't think so. Uh but yeah, I mean it could be any number of them uh or or you know, why not why not Malachi or why not Zechariah? Um uh, again, I think from the viewpoint of the Jewish people who really not only A saw Elijah as the great prophet, um, but perhaps also Malachi's uh prophecy that Elijah would come again uh to the people that, that there was always this attachment with with Elijah. Um and 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 that picture and we we see it reflected in these gospel lessons as we continue on in the lesson of transfiguration. The, the disciples start asking about uh, Elijah and well, wasn't he supposed to come first? And, and Jesus, of, coi- of course, directs them to John the Baptist as being the one who was full of the spirit of Elijah, who did bring about the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy.
0: It says that they were talking with him. And uh, that makes me kind of wonder, as I've been listening to both of you describe what role they played in, in their conversation with Jesus. Like what was the, you can imagine Jesus, what he would have been saying, but like, what would they have been saying? Like more asking questions of Jesus or, uh, making statements. And, uh, I don't know. What do you think? Well, Luke, uh, reports in his gospel that they were talking about Jesus'
2: departure or his exodus. Uh, one of my catechism students asked me the other day, we were just looking up an account from Exodus, he just said, You know a lot of times the books of the Bible are named after letters or people. Why Genesis or exodus and this our seventh grade teacher who was sitting there, he raised his hand and said, Well, exit, you know Exodus, and so we had to explain what an exodus was to the seventh grader uh and, and that's what that's what I think they were talking about, especially based on what Luke says as they're talking about Jesus crucifixion, his resurrection, and ascension.
1: Right. And it says quite clearly uh, in Luke's gospel that they were discussing his departure, which he would bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem. And so I think the most obvious picture there is indeed talking about that final fulfillment. Uh, Indeed, Jesus came to keep the law. He also came to suffer and die uh, to redeem us who were still under the law. Uh, And so, yeah, discussing his departure, uh, I would Hope, motivating and encouraging him, of course, uh, so that he could, with resolute courage, uh, go forth and bring about this fulfillment um, that that the suffering servant would indeed be pierced uh, for our salvation.
0: So you're saying that it, they were probably more likely. I, I don't. Know, I guess I'm. What I was wondering is, what's the nature of their role in the conversation? I mean, we think of sharing information as like you know, telling people things that they they don't know well what are they going to inform Jesus of uh what you know why would they be talking uh, are they going to ask Jesus questions are they going to are they wanting information from him um what's the conversation going like that's kind of more what I was mm-hmm. getting at with my question and i i had a thought and it was as i was listening to you talk about moses being the lawgiver and then elijah being this this great prophet of maybe moses saying something like you know now now jesus because he's a man he's a true man have you have you kept all those laws that i gave to the israelites you know or something like that like have you have you have you lived a perfect life uh have you done everything that you got circumcised you uh, obeyed your parents you did all these uh sacrifices you followed all my rules and then maybe elijah if he's anything like john the baptist which he was a predecessor of uh is maybe elijah asking him something like now are you are you really holding the uh authority's feet to the fire because that's kind of what Elijah did with Ahab and John did with uh, Herod and and others um and and Jesus kind of I I'm just kind of picturing Jesus standing there and nodding and saying yes yeah I, li- I lived a perfect life and yes I'm preaching repentance to uh, small and great alike I guess I picture you know uh Moses and Elijah
2: just kind of encouraging Jesus uh kind of like you know when I've I've gone to someone's home after someone has died and uh, you know, I'm not telling them anything new; I'm just kind of reminding them of what of the promises God's already made and and that's what I think of Moses and Elijah just talking about, especially Moses, you know, as he said, he's talking about an exodus, so Moses knows a little bit about an exodus. I'm not really sure how Elijah would fit in talking about a departure, except maybe he could talk about his departure from from the earth and the fiery he, chariot. He could tell Jesus what
0: it's going to be like when you ascend, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you're saying that maybe um Moses and Elijah were doing the uh one of the initial deathbed visits. <laughs> Almost. There you
1: go. I like that. Yeah, I think a little bit of what we look at here is what was, you know, the transfiguration intended to accomplish for the disciples, but then also for Jesus. I mean, was this just merely for Peter, James, and John, or was this for the spiritual strengthening and encouraging of Jesus, who uh, was going to have to endure quite a lot uh, as as the week goes on? Uh, and so, indeed, I think that them being there, speaking about his departure, uh, would have also been, yes, maybe repeating a lot of what he already knew, Uh but again, we, we need to continually feed on that, on that spiritual food uh, to maintain our strength.
0: His, his, in other words, his human nature needed encouraging.
1: Oh, absolutely. I, I, I think that we, we do a disservice if we just assume that Jesus is just God uh, and, and, and leave out his humanity here. Uh, and so indeed that, that he is going to hear the father once again speak, this is my son whom I love. I'm well pleased with him. So listen to him. Uh and to to see Moses and Elijah and perhaps receive their encouragement. Maybe Moses says, Look, God's law says be perfect and 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 you've done it. Well done. Now now keep it up. Go forth, lamb without blemish or defect. You know that that, that very well could have been some of the encouragement there. Uh and 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 likewise, um Elijah could say, Look, how often and how long have us prophets reached out to God's people trying to turn their hearts back, um, trying to bring them back into the fold, and here you are, the good shepherd, you are going to accomplish this work, so go forth uh, and, and and win many more people over for God? That could be an element of it. And I think, too, uh, that encouragement
2: that Moses and Elijah can give, very similar to what the angels will give later on on uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane, on the Mount of Olives, after Jesus uh you know during jesus prayer or afterwards and then also we'll see that this sunday with let it be two sundays from now the first sunday in lent after jesus temptation in the wilderness the angels come and minister to him as well so justin why did peter make the suggestion he did in verse four of saying uh, lord it's good for us to be here if you want i want i will make three shelters one for you one
1: for moses one for elijah Your guess is as good as mine. (laughs) I mean, the other gospel writers, uh, at least a couple of them stress, he didn't know what he was talking about. Uh, And yeah, we don't necessarily view Peter as a carpenter by any means, uh, nor do we see the likelihood of a lot of excellent building material up there, uh, nor do we really see the need for a long term or even a temporary shelter for them. Uh, And so perhaps it was just, you know, out of respect and reverence for God, like David, who wanted to build a house for the Lord and um, to give Him a beautiful place, um, you know, maybe this was just a, a way to show respect and honor to to three who were quite revered uh, uh, amongst God's people. Yeah,
2: I use that in my sermon I'm writing on the Old Testament lesson. That's the theme is uh, I gotta look it up just to make sure I remember what it is exactly. You know, disputes despite God's glory, and and what I I'm getting at there is that here is this really wonderful but also really weird uh, picture of God in the Old Testament. There's b- sprinkling of blood on the on the altar, sprinkling of blood on the people, then a sapphire road in heaven and God's feet and uh, the elders and Moses communing with God, sitting down and having dinner with him. And then uh, right in the middle of this, it says... Moses says to the elders, Wait here for us until we come back to you. Look here, our Aaron and her, they will be back, they will be with you. Whoever is involved in a dispute can go to them. So here's this wonderful, weird thing going on in the mountain. Then Moses thinks about, "Ah, But I got all those sinful Israelites down at the bottom of the mountain. We're going to send two guys down there. And I just, then I, in the sermon, make reference to Peter and Mark says in his gospel that. Uh, Peter didn't know what he was saying with the shelters. And then to think decades later, and we'll look at this in a few, few moments, that Peter, as he is recounting the event on the Mount of Transfiguration in his epistle, says, we do not follow cleverly invented stories. So he's defending himself to false teachers. And just to bring all of those things together, that even while there's glory because we're sinful people. We don't know what we're talking about. We're fighting with each other. We're making up stories. We are uh, that we're having disputes with each other. So we talked about how the transfiguration strengthened Jesus. But, Jeremy, how did the transfiguration strengthen the disciples,
0: do you think? I suppose you could make a case that in some ways it didn't, at least not initially, because they— uh, they they continued their arguing even on the night that Jesus was betrayed um they 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 fell away from him uh they fell asleep while he was praying and he wanted them to stay awake uh then after he was killed uh they didn't they it doesn't seem like they were hanging around the upper room talking about how great it was when he was transfigured um it wasn't until Jesus again showed himself to them alive and resurrected that they Uh, that they then had their minds opened and remembered. Um, So uh, I I suppose this kind of gets at what Peter wrote about in the epistle that we'll read in a few moments, that um, maybe not initially it wasn't very strengthening, but uh, once they saw the big picture and how it all ended, um, it was very impactful uh, to think back on that experience of having seen the transfiguration.
2: With uh, how this strengthened Jesus, I just want to go back to that because as I was thinking about this, I was wondering if this would also be strengthening to Jesus uh, in connection with the third temptation that is written about Satan to Jesus in the desert. Now, that would have been you know, three years earlier than the Mount of Transfiguration, but that temptation follows the very next Sunday of Transfiguration Sunday in our church year. And in that third temptation, Satan takes Jesus up onto a high mountain and says, all this will be yours if you just bow down and worship me. And what I was thinking about that with the connection to Jesus being transfigured is he's on that mountain, and in glory, everything is his. He's revealed in his full glory. I don't know if there's anything
0: to that or if it's just... But And he ended up receiving... What Satan had promised him, although not on Satan's terms, right. That's what he, I was he ended at, up. Yeah. yeah, he ended up getting the, the the kingdoms of the world. He got he got people. He purchased uh, uh, men and women from all nations with, through his blood, and they they really did belong to him. He didn't have to bow down. And yeah, that's that's an interesting thought.
2: Because I would make that connection, obviously, with Christ on the cross and the uh, and his resurrection, but just looking at the transfiguration, just seeing Jesus in his glory. He doesn't need to have Satan give him earthly glory because he has heavenly glory. So Justin, Matthew describes a bright cloud suddenly overshadowing them and then God speaking to them from the cloud. What does this remind you of from the Old Testament?
1: Yeah, and you have already alluded to this. Uh, at least one clear example that we see scattered throughout is that uh, pillar of cloud, uh And so when we look at the Israelites as they were making that exodus from Egypt, uh, we remember that that pillar of cloud went ahead of them to lead their way. We might also remember that that pillar of cloud stood between them and the Egyptian army as they were advancing against them uh, along the Red Sea. Uh, That pillar of cloud was there as the people grumbled and complained, and God blessed them with manna. Uh, That pillar of cloud filled the tabernacle, that pillar of cloud filled the temple when it was built. And so that that continual picture of God's presence uh, with the people, guiding the people, uh, protecting the people. Uh, and so perhaps we at least see a little semblance of that here, that, that enveloped in that cloud very clearly, we are in the presence of God. And then you hear him speak, this is my son whom I love. Uh, listen to him. Indeed, uh, very, very powerful. So I do think that at least in some ways, although we might see it quickly fade, uh, that this experience would have been quite edifying for these disciples. Um, Of course, these words are also mirrored uh, against Jesus' baptism. So how how fitting that we begin the season of Epiphany with Christ's baptism. Uh, And indeed, you are my son whom I love, as a couple of the gospel writers say. And then here also, uh, this is my son. So again, reaffirming uh, God's love for Jesus uh, as well as clearly stating who he is and what he has come to accomplish and that he's doing it in flying colors absolutely well I was just going to ask Jeremy about
2: uh, that statement of the father to the son this is my son whom I love with uh, whom I am well pleased him saying that it is baptism so then I guess, Jeremy, why those two areas of Jesus' ministry in his life, baptism and his transfiguration? What would make the
0: Father say it at those two events? He he needs to hear it uh, in, as a true human. He needs encouragement and affirmation. As he begins his work of ministry, his three years on this earth, those were very hard. That was very hard work. He was rejected by people. He he also had the stress of being very popular for a while, and that was that was a a taxing thing on his, um, you know, an exhausting thing to to be ministering to all of these people that just keep lining up for miracles. Um, uh, It had to be emotionally draining, uh, if you think about it um and uh, and then with with his transfiguration here uh he that, that he was beginning his great passion his his whole work of on this earth was a passion, it was a ministry of of his love for us uh, of suffering for us, uh but then he began the great passion of uh d- taking the punishment of our sin uh, through the the condemnation of the a government and through the condemnation of the church on Good Friday, both accused him and pronounced him worthy of death and then and then they killed him in a torturous way and that is something that he needed a lot of strength for
2: and based on what we were talking about before of Moses and Elijah, I think just tying it in too with uh the father saying to the son uh, i 'm well pleased with you because as you said before justin of uh, Jesus being the perfect uh, fulfillment of Moses' law or the law that God gave through Moses. But also, uh, I am well pleased because he's the one that's going to be leading them on an exodus that the exodus event in the Old Testament was the great salvation story of the Old Testament until Christ's death and resurrection or to connect it with Elijah on the mountain of uh, Jesus is coming, and He's going to be the one that's uh, like Elijah, dispelling all of these false prophets. For Elijah was Baal and Asherah; for Jesus, you know, everything having to do with the Pharisees and Sadducees and their false teachings. But then also Elijah praying—you uh, know, after dousing the sacrifice with all the water, and then praying, you know, Lord, just glorify yourself among the people and that's what Jesus really is the fulfillment of all of that. So Justin why do you think Jesus says to the disciples uh, as they're coming down the mountain don't tell anyone about what you just saw?
1: Yeah, That is perhaps one of the top questions that you get from a few different accounts where Jesus will perform an amazing miracle or or something just utterly amazing happens and then he says by the way don't tell anyone. Uh, and it, it is a little bit interesting that he says, don't tell anyone until after I've been raised from the dead. Uh, as a matter of fact, I, I'm trying to remember if it's Mark's or if it's Luke's gospel, but, uh, they kind of even have a little bit of a discussion of well, what do you think he meant by rising from the dead? What was he talking about there? And so they're even completely confused about the very clear picture that, that Jesus has told them at least a handful of times by now. Um, Yeah, I don't know that I have an excellent answer uh, as to why Jesus would say, hey, just keep this a little bit mum uh, and wait. Uh, And yet we are going to see that as Peter writes in his epistle, uh, that he was able to be an eyewitness of this, of this moment of glory uh, that was perhaps more truly uh, and fully seen as the resurrected Christ stood before them. Um, I don't know, what would they even have really said? to the other disciples, and how would that have even impacted them? Would it have, as we've kind of already stated, maybe this wasn't as edifying as one would have hoped for the disciples in their faith. So um, I, I don't know that a whole lot would have been gained having shared it with the other disciples. What sort of uh, odd discussions or quarrels would they have had about it?
2: Well, I was wondering if it wouldn't, that it probably would not have been edifying, knowing the disciples like to argue amongst themselves about which one of them was the greatest, and then these three guys can say, well, we're obviously the greatest because of what we saw on that mountain. You, yeah, guys, I, you guys are a bunch <clears> of
1: losers. <throat> I think there could be an element of that, which then perhaps brings in the bigger question of why these three and why these three somewhat repeatedly in scripture, right? We, we, we see a few different miracles where these three specifically are with them. Um, at the bedside of Jairus's daughter is one key one. Now, maybe that makes sense. Having a room full of people when you wake from the dead might be a little bit odd and strange. But then we would say, well, what about here on the Mount of Transfiguration? Surely they all could have gone up, right? And so maybe maybe the rest weren't in as
0: good a shape as these three.
1: Uh well, I don't know.
0: <laughs> they hadn't done enough cardio. Exactly. To go up, I don't to go know up the mountain.
1: We 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 do know that uh, one particular disciple outran Peter, so That's maybe right. He wasn't Pe- already in the greatest shape anyway, but Peter he made was it up not, there. So yeah. I don't know. No, we just, of course, <laughs> but yeah, um, can't really say for certain, uh, of course, uh, and yet. Jesus didn't say don't ever tell anyone. Um, but he did say, Hey, just wait until I rise from the dead and then and then give your clear eyewitness testimony of what you saw and heard up here.
0: All right. But did you have an answer? Or were you looking for one? I was just kind of looking for one because that okay. like I I got one. All right. Uh first of all, uh it is because it, so many so many times and so often people came to Jesus for a miracle for the wrong reasons. Uh, and they totally ignored the fact—the big thing that he came to do, which was, as your T-shirt points out, save the world. He—he—he um, he, he didn't just come to fix all of our little boo-boos and owies, Uh And—and and some of that's actually not the best way to put it, because a lot of things in this life are very serious issues, but they're not as serious as going to hell. And that's what Jesus came to really save us from. And so if too many people are fixated, especially when he was walking the earth and everybody was sick of having the Roman authority over them, uh, they would have been very fixated on his miraculous power to save them from immediate earthly troubles. Um, that's one explanation that I think is a, is a pretty good one. Uh, it did not originate with me. I'm just repeating things I've heard. And the other one is, uh, as to the three... Uh, inner eyewitnesses. One of the best things, my favorite thing that I've heard somebody say is, um, it basically is something like this: Jesus is getting the whole church ready to say, "You're gonna, you just, you're just gonna have to trust what somebody else is telling you." In other words, for the rest of the disciples, the, the, you're just, you didn't get to see it yourself. You're just gonna have to believe what someone else is reporting to you. Uh, and and there were three of them. So it's, an, it's a solid eyewitness testimony. And this is still how we have the word of God passed down to us today. Um, we we don't necessarily, we don't, the vast majority of Christians throughout the history of the world have not gotten to see Jesus walking on the earth in the flesh. But we, we have to trust what is preached to us by those who have seen it.
2: Yeah, I guess my answer would have been that uh, why? these three guys is like you said you've got you need at least two witnesses to something and then you have three witnesses we need peter up there to say lord it's good for us to be here so we have a hymn based on that cuz otherwise we don't have too many transfiguration hymns uh and then i think why jesus tells them not to say anything is because the people would be confused they're already confused by jesus talking about crucifixion and then Resurrection, you know, this is going to be even add even more confusion to that.
1: That absolutely could be. Uh, And to that point, um, especially concerning how it would be received by the people, uh, how difficult it must have been for Jesus to miraculously feed the 5,000 with bread and get to the other side of the lake, and there they are, and they're just interested in, hey, Jesus, got some more of that bread, please? And he goes, yeah, you guys just came because you wanted more bread. And then starts talking about eating my flesh and drinking my blood, and then you will have life, and they go, "Yeah, not into that," and they leave mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and so yeah how how often um, the 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 true purpose uh the true blessings that are ours through christ uh are are rejected for just merely the you know the 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 glory or the or the show the bread uh that that we that we might be looking for, so yeah, perhaps that is a part of the reason why he said, "Hey." No reason to really talk about this quite yet. Yeah, how, um, we'll save it. How many ladies would be asking Jesus for that bleach to get their clothes that white? <laughs> They're so dazzling. Oh, yeah. man, that could really save some time on my, my washing out there. Yeah. yeah.
0: You're, you're assuming just just the ladies that do laundry out there? Well, I know from experience that I
2: don't do laundry in my house because I've done it once in 26 years of marriage. My wife will attest to that, and I screwed it up so badly that uh, she won't let me do it again. That's a pro
1: tip, right? Yes. mess it up so badly that you're never asked to do something again, right. you know? <laughs> Uh
0: Let's get into the second reading. 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning with verse 16. So this is uh, one of the apostles that was up on the transfiguration decades later uh, as an old experienced pastor uh, writing to believers. And here's what he says. To be sure, we were not following cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the powerful appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from within the majestic glory, saying, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We heard this voice which came out of heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain, We also have the completely reliable prophetic word. You do well to pay attention to it as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Since we know this above all else, no prophecy of scripture comes about from someone's own interpretation. In fact, no prophecy ever came by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were being carried along by the Holy Spirit. So, Justin... What did this
2: mountaintop event that Peter is referencing here lead him to realize about Jesus?
1: I think it is a deeper, a deeper richer uh, reflection on maybe what we kind of started our discussion with, where, where Jesus asked, who do the people say I am? Who do you say I am? And he said, well, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Uh, and now he's not just speaking what was revealed to him by the Spirit? Now he is speaking uh, what what he he knows to be true from that eyewitness account. Uh, and so indeed, he knows uh, Jesus Christ is the Son of God, uh, and and he has seen His glory. Uh, he is an eyewitness of His Majesty.
2: And as you were talking there, I it, hit, it hadn't hit me until just now is how Peter is bringing all three persons of the Trinity into this part you know, because obviously the son is there on the mountain and the father speaking, but now he's saying, but this is revealed to us through scripture that I'm writing about. And we'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, Jeremy, Peter calls the scriptures light shining in a dark place. What does that light do?
0: Well, uh, I don't know if you have a particular answer you're looking for with this question, but, um, I guess right in verse 19, uh, it talks about the day dawning and the morning star rising in your hearts. And uh, that's a reference to something that happens, uh, that's going to happen for all believers after Christ returns and uh, establishes the new heavens and the new earth. And uh, it's not just going to be everything's kind of perfect on the outside and we have perfect bodies and we live in a perfect world, but. Uh, we're also going to have a perfect inner alignment of our will with God's and of our desires with what is holy. Uh, right now, we don't we, we have this struggle of our sinfulness inside of us versus our new spirit uh, from God's word inside of us, and it's a constant battle. Uh, and so won't that be nice, another thing to look forward to in the life to come, that the morning star will rise in your hearts. So I, I guess I'm saying the light is enlightening to our mental or spiritual darkness
2: yeah i I wanted to share with everyone what uh, luther has to say on this verse Uh, he says we must have the light of the word and cling to it until the last day then we shall no longer need the word just as artificial light is extinguished when the day dawns and he says elsewhere He bids us fix our eyes and keenness of mind on the word alone, on baptism, on the Lord's Supper, and on absolution, and to regard everything else as darkness. I do not understand or care about what is done in this world by the sons of this age, for they crucify me. I cannot escape or draw away that horrible mask which hides the face of God, but I must stay in the darkness and in exceedingly dark mist until a new light shines forth." So we've just been we've been trying to add more of the confessions and Luther to our podcasts,
1: which is always a good thing. And 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 even just thinking in a general way about darkness and light. I mean, uh, light indeed serves so many purposes. Uh, in a dark room, you're going to trip and crash into everything. Uh, but light is your guide. It helps you to see and navigate your way through. Um, the darkness is scary. It's terrifying um, as a young child and even as an adult in in complete darkness. There's always that anxiety, that fear of what might be there and that the light helps to alleviate that anxiety and that worry uh, that 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 can plague us. Uh, and so the rich picture here that that while we are still living in this world that is indeed still filled with darkness, there is a light that is shining and we would do well to pay attention to it. And you mentioned before, Justin, about how this
2: Transfiguration Sunday is the end of the Epiphany season, which is the season of light. And so with Ash Wednesday, we begin the Lenten season where the light is not extinguished, but I think we could say it's dimmed. And then I would encourage our listeners then to go. It, hopefully their church has an Easter vigil. So we have one uh on Saturday evening at at eight o'clock, so it's dark, and then we begin the service of in darkness. It's called a service of of light, and then the the church gets brighter and brighter as more and more lights are turned on, more and more candles are lit, uh, and we reintroduce the the Alleluias because this Sunday a lot of churches will have a farewell to Alleluia, and then to be able to
0: see that light dawn on Easter morning. So just. To clarify, so you don't mix your metaphors, I think the dimming light would be the exuberance more so than like we were just talking about God's word or Luther. The Luther quote was talking about God's word being the light, and uh, we don't dim God's word during Lent. No, it's still
2: yeah the exuberance like you said, removing the alleluias. Yeah, the joy. The joy. Uh, So Justin. I'll ask both of you guys this question, but if you want to go first, Justin, Peter talks about divine inspiration here. Uh, How do you teach divine inspiration to your students, to your people?
1: Very carefully. Okay. (laughs) I think it is helpful, especially in a world that can so easily see this uh, as, well, oh, that's what Matthew wrote, or that's just what Paul thought, or that's just so-and-so's interpretation. That's what you think, man, uh, that in a world uh, that can so quickly fall into that trap, uh, we recognize that God did indeed use these individuals, and yet he is the one who is guiding, uh, reminding, teaching, uh, and, and using them. Uh, as a vessel in order to share his word with his people. Uh, Jesus told his disciples before he left them that, that I'm going to leave you, but the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send, he's going to come to you and he's going to teach you and remind you of everything that I told you. So it wasn't just up to Peter or to Matthew or to others to remember these things. The Holy Spirit was working in their hearts uh, to guide uh, what they recorded, which is the word of God. Jeremy, how do you teach divine inspiration?
0: very sloppily (laughs) not not really actually but i was thinking of so if i can borrow this like i just i just kind of sometimes i'll i'll take a bible and i'll be like just pretend like this is god and i and i sort of move the bible like a mouth Hmm. opening and closing and saying this is this is god talking to you this is his his word and yes we we can we it's it, you're right. You do need to be careful because it's a tricky thing. The Bible didn't just fall out of the sky. Uh, God didn't just give us stone tablets that we've now printed on pages. He used humans to do it. And so we can actually say both, that um, Peter wrote this epistle. That's true. God wrote this epistle. That's also true. Uh, and yet um, there, there there are lots of different authors of the books of the Bible, Um But you can see the the remarkable, you know, as much as people try to find contradictions, what is truly remarkable is how much unity and uh, solidarity of belief just permeates the whole thing, even though it was written over the course of hundreds or even thousands of years, and it's still saying the same thing. Um, You can tell it's not just those human authors who are writing, it's also God. The way I often teach divine inspiration is just to talk even about
2: the four gospels of how Matthew, Mark, and Luke, like you said, Jeremy, even those three authors writing at different times, uh, they're very similar in what they write. In fact, they're called the synoptic gospels. And Matthew, though, is writing by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, where the Holy Spirit is using his, his memory of being with Jesus as a disciple uh, and very meticulous being a tax collector, a former tax collector. Uh, but he's writing to Jews. And so he has the Jewish festivals, the ceremonies and so forth. Mark and Luke, they're writing to Gentiles. And so they have a different emphasis. Uh, one of them is really focused on a lot of Jesus miracles. And Mark, I know it's, it's the shortest and it's really focusing on, uh, Beho- you know, like suddenly, you know, it's like the breathless gospel. It sounds like it's Peter's gospel that he's kind of recounting to Mark. And then John, he's writing after the other three and then filling in some of the gaps. And then half of his gospel is based on Jesus' passion. Uh, and then I can talk about the other uh, other apostles and, and prophets and so forth. But just to say, these were very in- different individuals But the Holy Spirit used each of those uh, different individuals to write something. Like you said, too, Jeremy, everything's cohesive. Everything fits together very well. So the last question I have for you guys then is, why is divine inspiration so important?
1: Divine inspiration is so utterly important um, because if this is just what Peter remembers or if this is just merely what Paul thinks, uh, then what firm ground are we standing upon? Um but if we understand, and rightly so, uh that God has inspired this word, uh that his word does not pass away, that his word is truth, uh then we know that we have a, a foundation upon which we can build that 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 does not crumble or fall. Uh and so this is the rock steady foundation upon which we stand. Uh and 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 we we see it uh whether it is Paul, who even Peter admitted, uses some phrases that can can be a little bit hard to understand and and some people twist it, Uh, or or whether you have a gospel that seems very straightforward and the Greek is easy and it just seems to roll right off the page uh, as you translate it, that God uses all of these uh, with their various skills and gifts and talents. Uh, He uses their memories. uh, He inspires their language. And all of it is, is... for us and for our salvation, uh, that we can be confident of what God has said uh, and that it is true for us.
2: Anything else you want to add to that about the importance? No, that, uh, that pretty well sums it up. All right, so we'll wrap it up here. Uh, this is Michael Zarling with Justin Pommier. And in honor of the transfiguration, as white as the lightning, let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wants the water of life take it as a gift. Stay thirsty, my friends, and drink deeply from the water of life.